Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. It was June of 2022, and the venue for the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, the venue was packed. Hundreds of far-right politicians and activists gathered to claim election fraud to launch attacks against the press. Donald Trump was one of the main speakers. He was slated to give a talk on Chinese election interference. Jason Miller was there, Trump's senior campaign advisor, and now the CEO of the conservative Twitter clone Getter. Also in attendance was Republican Mark Green, a far-right congressman who voted against the certification of Joe Biden as president. In a lot of ways, this was just another CPAC conference. The main difference was that this one was happening in Brazil, months before that country's presidential election. And all the false claims about election fraud, they were dubbed in Portuguese. This is the extent to which the MAGA movement embedded itself in Brazilian politics, a relationship that is now worth revisiting after Brazil this weekend had its own January 6th-style attack fueled precisely by fraudulent claims of a rigged election sown by right-wing politicians. That MAGA connection began back in 2018, when Eduardo Bolsonaro, the son of then-presidential candidate Jair Bolsonaro, reached out to Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief strategist. Bolsonaro needed advice. He wanted to know how Trump had made it to power and how his father could, too. Later that year, when the elder Bolsonaro won the election, he credited that that win to Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. In fact, when Bolsonaro made his first trip to the U.S. as president, he met with Steve Bannon before he met with Donald Trump. When those two leaders did eventually meet, Trump and Bolsonaro had lots of glowing things to say about one another. And when he got back to Brazil, Bolsonaro was happy to be called, quote, the Donald Trump of the tropics, the Trump of the tropics, to each his own. The relationship between Bolsonaro land and Trump world, it continued and it grew deeper. A few months after Trump lost the 2020 election, Eduardo Bolsonaro attended a cybersecurity forum organized by Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. The forum was supposed to show that the 2020 election was stolen by electronic voting machines. Bolsonaro had his own similar theories. He told Trump World his father had information about how hackers could get into Brazil's electronic voting machines. And claims, with no proof, were quickly shared all over social media, including in Brazil. And after January 6 happened, Eduardo Bolsonaro was quoted as saying in reference to those Capitol rioters, If it were organized, they would have taken the capital and made demands. On its face, it sort of seemed like Monday morning quarterbacking for an insurrection. But in practice, January 6th might have actually provided a lesson for the Bolsonaros. Because when Jair Bolsonaro lost the presidential election in October of 2022, he strategized. His son, Eduardo, immediately made trips to the U.S. and met in person with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. This is one of those meetings. It took place in November of 2022, while Bolsonaro was still contesting the results of the elections. There you can see Eduardo Bolsonaro sitting next to election denier Carrie Lake. 
Around that time, he also reportedly met with Jason Miller and with Steve Bannon. The dates here are important because while Bolsonaro's son was in the U.S., back in Brazil, thousands of Bolsonaro supporters were taking to the streets claiming election fraud, holding English language signs that read, quote, Brazil was stolen. And they closed streets and called for the military to intervene. When they were asked about their motives, some of them said they wanted chaos and chaos is what they got. On Sunday, in a scene that had eerie parallels to our very own January 6th, hundreds of Bolsonaro supporters attacked the center of government in Brazil's capital. As it happened in Washington, rioters broke windows and vandalized historical artifacts. They ransacked offices and common areas. The images are so similar to the ones from the Capitol attack that at times it's hard to tell one from the other. And despite all the damage that has been done to Brazilian democracy, Trump and his allies keep at it. Steve Bannon said yesterday on his podcast that he was, quote, not backing off one inch on this thing. This thing being presumably Brazil or maybe the attempt to destroy democracies around the world. Joining us here in the studio is Guga Chakra, international affairs analyst for Globo TV, which is Brazil's largest television network. Mr. Chakra, thank you for being here. Are we getting anything wrong about the connections that we outlined in that script between Brazil and the far right in American politics? Thanks for having me, Alex. It was perfect. There would not be Trump, uh, Bolsonarism in Brazil if there was not a Trumpism in the United States. There will not be even a, a Bolsonaro's presence in Brazil if there was not a Trump's presence in the United States. Bolsonaro and his sons and his group, they tried to replicate in Brazil what Trump did in the United States. They are major fans of Donald Trump. They love Trump. Eduardo Bolsonaro, the son of Bolsonaro, he has even like, he wore a MAGA, a MAGA hat. So he, he went, so he came to CPAC meetings here. They, he, he brought the CPAC to Brazil. So they want to do in Brazil what Trump did here. But the crazy thing is that the invasion of the capital mm -hmm. didn't work well, right. but they tried to do the same thing in Brazil. They, they basically, it sounds like they almost looked at it as a workshop for what they wanted to do or what they ended up doing later, which was to have people camped out in front of the Capitol, in front of the official buildings, demanding the justice that Trump, for example, was never able to, to, to achieve effectively. Uh, I wonder when we talk about how this movement came to be in Brazil, I think in America, we have a hard time understanding the way we are actively exporting election fraud and election denialism and conspiracy theories. Can you talk a little bit about what Trump and what January 6th meant to Brazil and how that unfolded in your country? A lot. Because of what Trump did on January 6th, or because of what he did after he lost to Joe Biden, they saw that in Brazil and they wanted to do the same. After that, and even before, but after that, Bolsonaro started to talk about fraud, about the electronic ballots that wouldn't work well, that you couldn't trust then. So he starts to put this on the head, on the minds of some of his followers. Not all of them. Mm -hmm. Many of Bolsonaro's voters, they don't believe what Bolsonaro says. They voted for him for different reasons. But on those followers. So it worked in a way because they really think that there was fraud and Lula was not legally elected president, legitimate the elect, elected president of Brazil. Do, do, 
had people been thinking about the concept of election fraud before it started becoming such a pervasive virus in the United States? Is that is that something that was talked about in Brazil prior to this? No, it was not talking about like almost never. Like the always the loser accepted the result. Like Lula lost three elections in the past. So and the other the vice president of Lula lost to Lula, actually. He was a rival of Lula in the past, Geraldo Alckmin, and they always accepted the results. Because in Brazil it's different than the United States. You can count votes in a few hours. Everybody votes the same way, and it's one person, one vote, who has more pop, uh, who, who wins in the popular vote over the country's elected president. So it's easier than the U.S. So it's harder for Bolsonaro to try to do what Trump did in the U.S. People, I think, don't recognize um, the ways in which, well, to begin with, Brazil is a younger democracy than the the United States of America. We're always seen as the baby on the international stage, but really it's post-1985 that this democratic Brazil exists. Because of the history you guys have with autocracy and military rule, uh, top-down management, as it were, do you think you're in a better position to battle this kind of misinformation, to battle this kind of push towards autocracy? No, in a way, it's different. Or is it the opposite? Like, in some ways, it's better because Brazil is not as polarized in the United States that you have a two-part system. Brazil is a multi-part system. So you saw the response on Monday with Lula and all the governors, the judges, the president of the Senate, of the House, all together and meeting and then running a walk in front of the presidential palace to the Supreme Court. That, in this way, is better. But the, as an institution, the armed forces in the United States is a stronger institution than the armed forces in Brazil. When we talk about how to quash this, right? It's it's the misinformation, the disinformation that's coming from the Steve Bannons, the CPACs, the, the international internet where conspiracy theories flourish. But it also sounds, as, in, as it is in the United States, that there are certain funders behind this, right? I, I did not know this. Um, the people who are enca- encamped outside of the government buildings, outside of the army headquarters, saying that uh, Bolsonaro won the election, the people who were the acolytes, effectively, of the Steve Bannons and the Bolsonaros, they had one of them, Mr. Rodriguez, this is according to the New York Times, spent nine weeks sleeping in a tent on a narrow pad with his wife. When he provided a tour of the encampment, it had become a small village since Bolsonaro had lost the election. It had showers, a laundry service, cell phone charging stations, a hospital, and 28 food stalls. This was not some ad hoc tent village. This sounds like there was funding behind this. What more do you know about the groups that may have been working to actively support Bolsonaro's anti-democratic forces. So the Brazilian justice is investigating many companies, dozens of companies. We know that some of them, they're linked to the agribusiness in Brazil, but not only to the agribusiness, to other sectors of the Brazilian economy as well. And you can, we can't generalize the agribusiness, like some groups in the agribusiness would be financing, but they're still uh, beginning this investigation and we will know soon who was behind that because there were people behind that for sure. Can you just explain agribusiness when you talk about that? Is that largely the business that is intent on further developing Brazil, parts of the Amazon to cattle ranching? Is that who we're talking about? Is that part of that? It's really strong in Brazil, in different parts of Brazil. Brazil is is the size of continental United States. So it's different. The the agribusiness in the region of the Amazon, when you compare to the agribusiness in the Sao Paulo state, that's much more developed. So it depends a lot where we are talking 
talking about, but it's a huge sector in Brazil and one of the most developed sectors in the Brazilian economy, for sure. Well, I know that Lula, the actually democratically elected leader, has mentioned agribusiness. They're very intent on finding out who is financing this push towards autocratic, anti-democratic forces. We will be following the story there as we follow it here. It's so nice to have you on set. Thank you Thank for your reporting. Alex. Thank you for time. Thank you. Guga Chakra, international affairs analyst for Globo TV, which is, of course, Brazil's largest TV network. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Now let's turn to Ruth Ben-Ghiach. She's a history professor at New York University and the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Ms. Ben-Ghiach, thanks for joining us tonight as we kind of contemplate wh- what January 6th has done around the world. When, when you look at what happened in Brazil, is this just on its face a Xerox copy of what was done on January 6th? No, it's not. I mean, you do have a playbook, which is, you know, you, you want to discredit the idea of, of election integrity. And that's because, you know, both Bolsonaro and Trump had personality cults. And so you want your, if you lose, you want your leaders, sorry, your followers to think that uh, you've been, uh, that it's been rigged against you and then they can continue to venerate you. And the other thing is you want to, uh, you know, plant the idea that violence might be necessary to avenge you. And so Bolsonaro, back in June, he said stuff like, you know, if necessary, we will go to war. And so he set this up. The fact he wasn't there uh, at the time because he went to Florida, he's under investigation. Um, And he also, for him to have participated in the ritual of handing over the presidential sash would have meant he would lose status with his followers. So that's that's the playbook. But this was very different because they did this when on on a Sunday when uh, at a a time when uh, everything was in recess. So nobody was there. And yet they wanted to show it was much easier to breach the barrier. It was easier to trash the buildings because nobody was in there. And they wanted to show that the Brazilian, uh, you know, protesters, bolsonaristas and people who are protecting them in the institutions can can show they have force and they're a force to be reckoned with. What is the utility of I mean, So they're there to show they have power, to show they have force. It sounds like they also wanted to invite the military in, that the chaos was a prelude to a military takeover. That seems to be an important part, an important piece of this, right? In the same way, I mean, I would say on January 6th, there was some hope that somehow Trump would also call in the military and that by force, they would both be kept in, in office. I guess I wonder when you look at that sort of inclination in Brazil, it seems particularly potent given the fact that the military was ruling the government until just recently. Yeah. Well, this is a huge difference in that, um, the protesters did indeed, they were camped out in front of the military headquarters and they did indeed want to, they were hoping the military would have an intervention and bring their hero back. And, you know, Bolsonaro uh, was in the army and he was very nostalgic for the military dictatorship. And that 21 year dictatorship only uh, ended in 1985. And it's important because there are millions of Brazilians who are, again, they're still nostalgic and Bolsonaro is their chief. But they also there's millions of Brazilians who know that uh, thousands were tortured and, you know, they were killed and disappeared. 
And if we want to look at why the Lula government is showing exemplary strength in uh, acting immediately to quell this, right, arresting 1,500 people, investigating 100 companies that provided help to the protesters. You were talking about the big encampment. They might freeze the assets of 100 companies. You know, these are things that didn't happen here, but we don't have a past of a military dictatorship that started with a coup. And there they know exactly what can happen if you don't nip this in the bud. I guess I wonder when we look around the world, I mean, it didn't all begin and end, obviously, on January 6th, but it feels like there's this tide sweeping the globe, whether it's in Hungary, whether it's in Myanmar, whether it's in Brazil, whether it's right here at home in America. The forces of autocracy, the anti-democratic movements seem to be spreading like a virus around the world. Do you attribute that to one force in, do you attribute that to one catalyst in particular? Is it globalization? Is it economic disenfranchisement? Is it the fracturing of our information systems? The atrophying of our institutions? I mean, how do you look at this moment holistically and explain why these forces seem to be so potent right now around the world in countries that are very different from one another? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's all the things that you mentioned. And I would also add that um, democracy has democracies have perhaps uh, taken their appeal for granted. And it's honestly been, um, you know, these strongman types who are often come from, uh, they have media experience, mass communications experience. They're extremely skilled in using emotions like Trump and Bolsonaro would tell their supporters they love them. Right. Trump did that in January 6th. I love you. And so they would seem to be addressing the problems of uh, a changing world. And one thing my research shows is that these kinds of um, strongmen and these kinds of authoritarian uh, regimes, they have an appeal when a society has gone through a lot of change. So, Trump, we were ripe for this after eight years of an African-American president. Many people never accepted he legalized same-sex marriage. You let women in the military into combat. And so some people love this. Other people feel that they're losing their status. And there's been a lot of this in the world. And that partly explains the appeal of these strongmen, which is going strong. Can we just talk a little bit about a point you just raised, the idea that, you, the, that, that people are in search of a paternalistic sort of father figure, the emotional core of, of what is very um, not of a piece with the rest of the message, as it were, right? I mean, you have these strong men that have rage and violence are central to their message. But at the same time, there's this I love you, this paternalistic attitude yeah. that you can come and seek safe harbor with me, that I care about you. What do you owe that to? Is that people losing faith and community and not having institutions where they feel a part of something? What is that? It's partly that loneliness is a huge uh, issue today. There's atomization. And I think that, you know, uh, disinformation has torn people apart. Polarization tears people apart. And uh, change, the perception of change, you know, and what these guys do is they also create chaos and then they rise up and they say, I alone can fix it. Um, but they do use emotions very effectively. So on the one hand, they're the protector, they're the defender of the nation, and yet they also play the victim. And this is very important. And Bolsonaro and Trump, uh, they all say, and Erdogan and Turkey, 
They all say that they're the persecuted ones. There are witch hunts against them. When Bolsonaro goes into the hospital, he recurrently, you know, he recurrently goes to the hospital because he had, he was stabbed a few years ago. He, he broadcasts live video from his hospital room and he's got his gown on. He's hooked up to monitors. And so they're very like, quote, transparent with their bodies. And this makes people feel protective of them. And so when they summon the faithful to save them, uh, it's very, uh, it has an appeal. And you saw these hardcore, you know, supporters camped out, ready to uh, save their hero. Wow. Lessons from the authoritarian's playbook. Ruth Ben-Ghiad, professor of history at NYU. Thanks for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. We have much more ahead tonight. Republicans have been in a frenzy for the past 24 hours, trying to draw similarities between the discovery of classified documents in a Biden think tank and the discovery of classified documents held at Trump's private residence. But they they might be kind of off in those comparisons. We'll tell you all about that coming up. And next, now that Republicans officially control the House, what are they planning to do with all their newfound power? Oh, boy. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. Zoe Lofgren joins me to discuss. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Have you brought with you um, some of those devices which would have enabled the CIA to use this poison for, we have indeed, for killing people? Don't, don't point it at me. <laughs> when it fires, it fires silently. Almost silently, yes. When it strikes the, the, the uh, target, um, does the uh, target know that he's, about, he's been hit and about to die? That depends, Mr. Chairman, on the particular dart used. That was Idaho Democratic Senator Frank Church in 1975, grilling CIA Director William Colby about the CIA's secret targeted assassination program. That hearing was one of several held by what is today known as the Church Committee. It was a special Senate committee led by Senator Church in the 70s to investigate abuses of power by the intelligence community. The committee conducted a broad, nonpartisan investigation that led to important revelations about the CIA's covert operations, which included assassinating foreign leaders and infiltrating civil rights groups and a bunch of other previously unknown activity. 
Prior to those hearings, there was no Senate Intelligence Committee to oversee the CIA. Congress created that oversight body as a direct result of the Church Committee's work. Now, today, House Republicans are using the legacy of that important committee to justify their own attempts to investigate the investigations into former President Trump. House Republicans voted today along party lines to create what they are calling a new church-style subcommittee to investigate the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. Unlike the original church committee, this new effort by House Republicans appears to have explicitly partisan goals, specifically undermining law enforcement investigations into January 6th and former President Trump's mishandling of classified documents. And the committee has given itself broad powers. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has reportedly agreed to give the committee at least as much funding and staff as the January 6th committee. And the resolution establishing the committee also gives it the ability to collect information about ongoing criminal investigations. That means Republicans will seek unprecedented access to non-public information about the Justice Department's current cases involving the former president. That sort of examination, effectively asking the DOJ to open up its book books before any investigation is complete, that has not really happened before because it could greatly compromise the department's work. Now, law enforcement and intelligence agencies can and do commit abuses of power, as the Church Committee revealed nearly half a century ago. But investigating a former president for his own clear abuses of power is not usually what we think of when we think of a rogue FBI or CIA. So what should we expect from this new committee and how will congressional Democrats respond? Joining us now is California Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, former member, of course, of the January 6th committee. Congresswoman Lofgren, it's great to see you. Thanks in advance for your time. Getting their paws into an open investigation seems deeply problematic here. What is your expectation about how successful Kevin McCarthy and his band of merry Republicans are going to be in trying to get involved in, in trying to get involved in the Justice Department's ongoing work. Well, there's a huge concern. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's never been uh, a committee of the House that has been directed to interfere in ongoing uh, criminal investigations being undertaken by the Department of Justice. That would be a first, and it's highly improper. It's not the role of oversight. We oversee policy, uh, do fact-finding, but don't interfere in prosecutions. And further concern is that it looks like the Department of Justice is maybe taking a look at least at one of the House members who advocated for this committee, as we know uh, from news reports and his own report, uh, Representative Scott Perry had his phone seized. Now, that only happened because a warrant was issued. And a warrant is only issued if a judge finds probable cause that a pro- that a crime has been committed and that the evidence of that crime may be found on the object. So that he would uh, think it would be appropriate for him to be involved in interfering with that investigation of himself is really absurd. And let's remember that quite a few of the Republican members of Congress who supported the formation of this committee sought pardons from President Trump. And I think many of us think that seeking a pardon is at least some evidence of uh, uh, indicia of guilt 
So this is trouble from the beginning. Do you, uh, you mentioned Scott Perry, who's come up a lot in the context of January 6th and the plot to send fake slates of electors uh, to complicate the certification of election results. Jim Jordan, who may chair this, is someone who refused to co cooperate with the January 6th committee. Dan Bishop, another name that's been floated potentially to sit on this panel, voted against certifying the election results. I mean, are, are they basically just trying to get a jump on potential indictments <laughs> by like looking at what the Justice Department is doing? It's hard for me to imagine how the DOJ cooperates with this at all. And this doesn't end up being an issue of the legislative branch versus the executive branch, i.e. the DOJ, right. and end up at the Supreme Court. Do you see it going there? Well, I never like to uh, speculate as to what a fellow member of Congress's motive is. But it looks to me like this is an effort uh, to interfere with ongoing prosecutions. And the Department of Justice is likely not uh, going to agree to that. And this, and I'm sure, will be litigated extensively. One of the things I learned in the January 6th uh, committee is how long it can, can take to get resolution to these uh, questions that re resolve, uh, revolve around uh, which branch of government has which rights. And so I think we will be in court for a long time. What about, I mean, what do Democrats do in terms of seats on this committee? I mean, a lot of people look at the Republican intransigence on the January 6th committee, the decision not to effectively participate with the exception, of course, of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, who were you know, basically labeled heretics in, inside the GOP. But I think Democrats understand that to be a, a very big misstep on the part of the GOP. They were completely in the dark, in large part, as far as the activities on the January 6th committee. And there were a lot of explosive pieces of information that the American public saw unfiltered. Do you, and I mean, I know that um, Pete Aguilar, one of the members of Democratic leadership, has suggested Democrats will be on all subcommittees. Do Democrats play ball and, and take seats on a committee that may have very questionable goals? I think it would be a huge mistake not to take our seats uh, at these uh, subcommittees uh, or committee in the case of the uh, the China investigation. Um, I'll tell you, I don't want to be on it. I think, uh, you know, I've paid my dues through service on the January 6th committee, and there are plenty of other able members of the Judiciary Committee, but I think it would be a mistake. Even though it's a mistake to have the subcommittee, it would be uh, an error for Democrats not to participate and play our appropriate role of calling out what we see is going wrong. Does the mere existence of this committee muddy the waters in terms of the work that the January 6th committee accomplished? Just the fact that Republicans will be able to sort of cast aspersions on the work of the tireless investigators who work to bring the truth to the American public. Does, is the goal already met in some way? I don't think so. It's possible that's a motivation. But one of the things that the committee did that I feel um, satisfied with is that not only did we issue our report and the appendixes, but we, we released all the footnotes and all of the evidence. So, uh, you know, you, 
Republicans can say whatever they want to discredit it, but the news media and the public can go and read the original documents. They can look at the emails. They can they can look at the transcripts. They can look at uh, listen to um, the radio traffic. And so it's not going to be possible just to effectively lie, which I think may have been a goal of some of my colleagues. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thank you for your time tonight. You can, of course, pick up a copy of the January 6th report at any reliable bookseller near you or on the Internet. Or for free. Or for free. free Or download it if you just want to use a lot of printer paper. It's always great to see you. Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you. Good to see you. Coming up. The really big and very important thing everyone seems to be missing about the discovery of classified documents in President Biden's old office. That's coming up next. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The 101 is a highway that more or less stretches all the way up the Pacific West Coast. If you've spent time in L.A. or San Francisco, the chances are you've spent some time on the 101, sitting on it, probably. It's a major traffic. It's a major traffic artery in those two cities with major traffic. This was the 101 in the Bay Area today. It basically turned into a free-flowing river. It has been raining relentlessly all over this. There it is. That's the 101. That's what it looks like today, because it has been raining relentlessly all over the state of California since Sunday, which has been causing catastrophic flooding and heavy winds. So far, 17 people have died as a result of the storm. There's also a search underway for a missing five-year-old who was swept away by the floodwaters. The storm is called sinkholes and mudslides. It has downed trees. It has flooded entire homes and washed people's cars away. More than 175,000 people, thousand people are without power tonight. 50,000 people have been ordered to evacuate their homes. 34 million people are currently under flash flood watches, and that is 10% of the entire United States of America. In Montecito, which is near Santa Barbara, that entire city is under a mandatory evacuation. A New York Times reporter there today described hearing the sound not of the rain, but of the boulders getting carried away in the surges of water in the streets. The reporter said the air smelled like mud. All this catastrophic rain is the result of what is called an atmospheric river. It's a storm that looks kind of like a skinny winding band, that kind of in the shape of a river, which then dumps 
an enormous amount of water once the storm makes landfall. It's the kind of storm that's liable to get more intense as a result of climate change because warmer air is capable of holding more moisture. Just one of these storms can carry up to 15 times the volume of the Mississippi River. California has gotten hit by five of those atmospheric rivers just in the last two weeks. And it is not letting up anytime soon. The lieutenant governor of California warned residents today that more rain is on the way because another storm is expected to make landfall sometime tomorrow. Meteorologists say a dry pattern is not expected in California until more than a week from now. This is going to get worse before it gets better. We have more ahead tonight. Stay with us. Okay, let's do a thought experiment. Stay with me here. Let's say you had a job at the White House where you you were in national security. You naturally had access to classified information in the course of doing your job at the White House. And then you either accidentally or intentionally took some classified documents home or maybe to another office. In one scenario, hundreds of classified documents were found. In the other, about a dozen classified documents were found. Putting the numbers aside, it turns out in both scenarios, some of those documents included classified information about foreign intelligence. Both scenarios are not good. Those classified documents should have been returned to the White House and then sent to the National Archives when your White House work ended. But whether by accident or on purpose, it happened. So now what? Either the National Archives realizes that some documents are missing and asks you to return them, or a colleague discovers them at your office, stowed away with some other personal items. Now, you have two choices if you find the documents yourself. You can tell the National Archives, or you can wait until the National Archives comes to you to request them. You can voluntarily hand over the documents and cooperate, or you can ignore multiple requests. You can refuse to hand them over. And then you can then hand over some of them, but not all of them, and drag on the process for roughly a year and a half. And then you can continue to fight to give them back for so long and so hard that the FBI has to go to court to obtain a search warrant to execute on your home because you refuse to just give them back. Which, of course, brings us to today's news, that a lawyer for President Biden discovered a dozen classified documents dating from his time in the Obama administration. The documents were found on November 2nd at an office Biden used in D.C. after leaving the White House. Attorney General Merrick Garland has assigned a U.S. attorney in Chicago, one appointed by Donald Trump, to investigate this matter. President Biden at a press conference in Mexico City earlier this evening said he was, quote, surprised to learn that there were any government records found there and that he and his office are cooperating fully. Contrast that with former President Trump, where the National Archives asked him multiple times for documents it realized were missing. Trump strung them along for months. The saga came to a head in August when the FBI took the extraordinary step of executing a search warrant on Trump's Florida home, leading to Trump being investigated for possible obstruction, possible violations of the Espionage Act, and destruction of records. Again, both situations Donald Trump and Joe Biden have found themselves in are not great ones. But one of these things is not like the other. Joining us now is attorney Mark Zaid. He specializes in cases involving national security. Mark, thanks for being here tonight. Are we right to draw a very, very broad distinction between what is happening in the Biden case and what happened in the Trump case? No, you're not. You're not wrong at all. And you laid out all of these facts and you didn't even lay out all of them because you would probably have to take up your whole program. 
to indicate the differences that led to why the FBI had to execute a search warrant and why these two cases are not like one another. And neither of them are good cases. But if President Trump and his legal team had acted the way so far we've seen the Biden team act, there would be no legal issues for Donald Trump. Nobody would have said anything about it because it would have been just looked at as uh, not a good situation, but frankly, somewhat commonplace, not to the extent it was, but the mishandling of classified documents happens all the time, rarely criminal, almost always administrative in nature. And it was only because of the specific facts in Donald Trump's case that you laid out with respect to obstruction in particular, involving himself personally, which we have no knowledge of with respect to Biden so far, that's what makes the difference. Well, if you, Merrick Garland has assigned an independent investigator, a U.S. attorney in Chicago, to look into this. What is, what is he examining? I mean, is he looking for intent? What exactly, where does he start in a case like this? It's going to be fairly straightforward, though perhaps somewhat complicated because it was over a period of years, I guess 2017, when the files were placed there, presumably, although went the date back to 2013, so we don't know how they got into the box, but he'll essentially be trying to trace back how did those files get into that folder, which was mistakenly labeled personal items or intentionally labeled personal items, if he could figure that out. How did they get into the box? How did the box get into the locked closet? Who had access to the locked closet? Did anyone have access to the box or the file folder? Was anything compromised? And yes, it may even involve interviewing President Biden to see what he may or may not know. Publicly so far, he said, he doesn't know anything about this. It wouldn't surprise me, but we'll wait to see where the investigation goes. What I mean, what makes it a crime? I mean, I assume intent is is part of it. Is the the number of record records, the sensitivity of the information? What are the thresholds here? So this is where law and policy and practice may all diverge. On its face, uh, Having a, a classified document at home, even if you want to look at a book like No Easy Day, which was a case I worked on, the book about bin Laden uh, being killed, there was supposedly classified information in that book. I have a copy. If you want to download a WikiLeaks document, still classified, that could be, if the government wanted to, prosecutable. But that's not what the government does as a policy or practice. The cases of mishandling classified information where people have been prosecuted have been egregious, voluminous amounts of pack rat hoarding type of situations. You know, no espionage, no leaking to the media, just compiling all the documents. I, I had a client once who was prosecuted for it, and, and it included documents that dated back to East Germany in the 50s, right? The country doesn't even exist, but it was looked to be as willful that he knew this person knew they should have not have the documents and not return them, you know, which, again, you compare and contrast the two cases for Trump and Biden. Attorney Mark Zaid, who knows all about this stuff and when something smells fishy and when something does not. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for your wisdom tonight, Mark. Thank you, Alex. We have one more story to get to tonight. There is one county in this country this week where they are still counting ballots 
from the 2020 election. Not the 2022 election, the 2020 election. That's next. Stay with us. Today marks the 10th day of the year 2023. But in Pennsylvania's Lycoming County, some people are still stuck in 2020. For them, today marked day two of a hand recount of the 2020 presidential election. Though Donald Trump actually won the county in 2020, 5,000 people signed a petition calling for a recount. Why? These folks were skeptical that in a county with growing numbers of registered Republicans, somehow President Biden performed better in 2020 than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. So county commissioners bowed to the pressure and they ordered a hand recount. As of last night, all the mail-in and provisional ballots had been counted and officials had started working through the in-person ballots. And after checking more than 23,000 ballots, it looked for a minute as if they had found something. The count was off by five votes in one precinct. But it turns out the hand recounters had made a mistake. And when their work was checked, the numbers matched the original official results. With more than a third of the approximately 60,000 ballots counted on day one, this little recount could end as early as tomorrow. But now, more than two years since the 2020 election, it's unclear just how much this recount will change any minds. For most of us, it is the year 2023. But for some people, it will never stop being 2020. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.